So when I arrived, the Da'an Park was not a park. And then they put up the sign that said, Forest Park. And I remember thinking, that is not a forest. Hello, time, everyone, and welcome to the new episode of the Innovative Minds with Audrey Tong. Today, the journey into the world of idea continues with a very special guest, Sandra Outkirk, director of the American Institute in Taiwan. Sandra is a senior diplomat of the United States uh, who joined the State Department in 1991, and her very first overseas assignment was exactly here in Taipei. In her many years of diplomatic career, she has had a wide range of experiences in various areas from economic affairs to energy security. And she's also highly experienced in Asian and Pacific affairs and speaks fluent Mandarin and Turkish. In summer 2021, she returned to Taiwan, welcome back, as AIT director, who is also the first woman holding this position. So please join me uh, in welcoming today's guest. Hi, Sandra. It's so nice to have you here. Hi, Audrey. It's great to be here. So, as I said, you speak fluent Mandarin and Turkish. Would you like to uh, greet our audience in both of the languages? So, you're being very polite about my language skills, but I will do my best. So, I will say, um, let's see. So, 大家好,我非常高兴有这个机会跟你们今天联络. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> and in Turkish? In Turkish, I would say, iakshamlar, chok mutlum. Bugun Excellent. Wow. <laughs> See, if I had known you were going to ask me that, I would have practiced the Turkish with my husband because his Turkish is much better than mine. I see. It sounds very fluent to my ears. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and your relationship with Taiwan is a special one. As I mentioned, uh, you were posted in Taipei in 1992, and you were the youngest, did I get that right, the youngest official uh, posted there. Well, I was probably the youngest American official at AIT at the time, but really what I was mm-hmm. is for a while, I was the youngest American diplomat, period. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Um, because we... Um, there's a requirement when we pass our well when we take our exams you have to be 20 to mm-hmm, take the exam mm-hmm. um and so i was hired the year i turned 21 oh wow yeah. okay can't be that so you can't can't couldn't be any younger <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly right so when we're uh, paste, posted to taiwan uh, i think the taiwanese culture is uh to put it mildly not very similar to the american culture <laughs> did you experience any culture shock I did and I didn't. So, well, I will say I, you know, I had been to Europe before, but I'd never been to Asia Mm -hmm. before coming here. And so I got off at the extremely long plane ride. Mm. And the first thing I thought in July as I landed at the Taoyuan airport was, oh, my goodness, I've gotten on the wrong plane and I am somehow back in Tampa Uh because the weather here in the summer and the weather in my hometown of Tampa, Florida, is exactly the same. So you would get off the plane and this wall of wet heat and asphalt smell would hit you. And so I was I was a little bit disconcerted, but I thought, okay, well, I'm going to be fine here. At least I understand the weather. Um, but uh, yes, uh, then the next morning I got up and I thought, well, I guess I'm going to speak Mandarin or I'm not going to eat. 
Um, so, you know, you had to, had to learn how to recognize dairy products at the, at the mm-hmm, family mart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, is it yogurt? Is it, is it milk? Um, uh-huh. is so, it soy? Or is it soy? What is this? <laughs> Shaking it. The, you know, lady is looking at me like, who is that weird foreigner? What is she doing here? Um, but no, Taiwan is a really welcoming place. Mm-hmm. I, you know had to deal with, you know, some sort of cultural differences, but I would say nothing that was overwhelming, nothing that was off-putting or difficult or scary. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I missed my family, and it was, you know, hard to be alone. Uh, it was my first adult job, but um, I can't think of a better place to have done it, really. Yeah, there was no video conferencing back then. <laughs> no, no cell phones, no video conferencing. You had to write letters by hand. Good old days. <laughs> and did, did the experience uh, influence your development as a career diplomat in the um, diplomatic career that follows? I think it did. Uh-huh. So I came here and I had what we call a full consular tour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I spent two years issuing visas mm-hmm. and um, dealing with what we call American citizen services. Mm-hmm. So that is a job experience that causes you to basically be forced to make Important decisions, Mm -hmm. certainly important decisions for the person who's applying for the visa Mm -hmm. with not complete information, which is absolutely fantastic training for anyone um, who wants to grow in responsibility and authority because you have to be – you have to know what your authority is. You have to be responsible. Mm -hmm. You have to make that decision. And for any of your listeners who remember the old AIT in the 90s with the big line of people yeah. on, you know, Shinny Lu, mm-hmm. there was a line of people waiting for you to make that decision, all mm-hmm. looking at you. Mm-hmm. Like, what mm-hmm. is taking that person so long? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. I think actually it, it was that assignment was very influential for me. And now you're back in Taiwan, uh, and that long line is, well, not in the same place anyway, right. and no longer a long line, mm-hmm. actually. Right, it's no longer a long line. <laughs> it's no long line anymore. Um, how else has Taiwan changed from your memory? Well, I was actually actually just talking to some people that I knew um, when I was here the first time um, earlier today. The thing that is the most notable is something that I actually talked about in my sort of first mm-hmm. video message here. It's the Da'an Park. So when I arrived, the Da'an Park was not a park. It was the number seven park, but it was basically a construction site. The Mm -hmm. city had just demolished um, some housing. It was empty. Mm -hmm. There were no trees. It was very hot. Um, And then they put up the sign that said, Forest Park. And I remember (laughs) thinking, that is not a forest. It's going to be 100 years before that's a forest. And then I came back, and there were these huge trees. And I thought, well, I guess I'm really old uh, because I'm older than the trees. And, um, but now it's a lovely park. And I think that's, you know, a lot of the change that's happened in Taiwan over time has been incremental, like Mm -hmm. the trees growing in the park. But it's also been really positive, like the, the evolution of that park. You know, Taiwan's democratic transition was well underway in the 90s, mm-hmm. but not yet finished. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Taiwan at that point was beginning to have a, an environmental consciousness, but mm-hmm. the I came back to visit when I was assigned to Beijing and the friend that we were, vi- the family was visiting said, well, let's ride our bikes along the Damshui River to Damshui. And I thought, no, 
I am not riding my bike along that river. And he was like, no, 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 the river's really nice. There's like a linear park with bike trails. Mm-hmm. Because in 1994, it was like auto chop shops and, and the river smelled bad. And so really a lot of positive change. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I also remember that the place we're in right now, uh, the Sea Lab, uh, used to be a, a headquarter for the Air Force. That's right. Right, and it's not like a park at all. <laughs> like actually, the complete opposite of a park. Very high walls and guards and mm-hmm. so on. So really, the democratic transition um, happened in just a couple of decades, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. Uh, and also, we now have a woman president. Yes. Which was not the case in '92. <laughs> um, and you're also the first woman to direct the AIT. Um, how does it feel to be a high-profile breaker of diplomatic glass ceilings? Well, you know, it's very interesting. So my entire professional career, mm-hmm. um, really up until the last five to ten years, mm-hmm. um, if you played the game of which one of these is not like the other, it would be me in the meeting. Oh. Um, but really, I think over time, that's changed. Uh, in the U.S. diplomatic service, it's certainly changed here in Taiwan, where I think Taiwan has some of the best numbers for female representation yep. uh, mm-hmm. in, in parliament and other places. Mm-hmm. So um, it is nice to not be the only woman in the room or at the table. Um, but um, it, it gives a sense of responsibility. So I do a lot of speaking to um, female foreign service officers. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have something called the Federal Women's Program, which is all sort of U.S. government employees for women. Um, And I'm I'm glad to see the progress we've made. There's still a long way to go, but it's always good kind of like looking at the park and the big trees to look back and see how Mm -hmm. far you've come. Yeah. So uh, let's look back at the very beginning. Like, why did you decide to become a career diplomat? Okay, this is an embarrassing story. Okay. Um, but it makes my husband look really good. Uh-huh. So uh, I, I met my husband when we were both students at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. And as the name indicates, a whole bunch of people at Georgetown in that uh, school take the Foreign Service exam every year. And so he encouraged me to take it, and we took it together, and I passed, and he failed. Oh. And if our positions had been reversed, that would have been the end of that relationship because I would have been like done with you. But he is a great person. Mm -hmm. He is not filled with ego. And, you know, we stuck together. I joined the Foreign Service. He didn't. Um, He took the Foreign Service exam, I think, six or seven times. He finally passed. He is now the same rank that I am, so it obviously didn't hurt him at all. Um, (laughs) And we have been happily married for more than 25 years. (laughs) That's an excellent story and not embarrassing at all. (laughs) So, um, And you performed uh, various type of roles during your career. Um, And would you like to share with us a little bit on how these different positions enriched your professional and personal skills? Sense. So actually, that that's that's great because the one of the best things about a foreign service career mm-hmm. is that you have a combination of job security. Mm-hmm. So my job is to be an American diplomat, but my assignment changes every say two or three years. So you learn a completely new set of uh, subject matter. So whether you go from, so I went in, in the space of 10 years from working on the U.S.-Turkey bilateral mm-hmm. relationship mm-hmm. to working on the U.S.-China bilateral mm-hmm. relationship 
to working on energy strategy for Europe and Asia. Now, those are related a little bit because both Europe and China have significant energy issues. Uh, they are in the right continents, mm -hmm. but it, it tends to be um, subject matter expertise that connects over like the full span of a career. So sometimes you'll see people, particularly mid-career, who move from being, say, the cultural affairs officer in mm -hmm. Poland to being an economic reporting officer in Thailand. It is not easy to connect those two jobs. Um, but the skills and the ability to be sort of a lifelong learner and to approach every new job as a generalist, mm -hmm. someone who should be have general skills and who can develop expertise as they go along, I think is really important. Yeah, um, speaking about learning continuously, uh, we just <clears throat> mentioned that uh, when you were first posted here, um, you were writing letters. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, it's um, mobile phone and video conferencing mm -hmm. and so on. H has the role of a diplomat changed over the last 30 years? Partly, I think, due to technology, uh, but also non-technological forces. I think it has changed actually a lot due mm -hmm. to technology. Um, so... And, and I'll go back further than 30 years. So in mm -hmm. the real olden days, when mm -hmm. it was like sailing ships and letters of okay. credence and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you would get your instructions from Capitol, and this was before I was in the Foreign Service, but one would get one's instructions from Capitol via a letter, mm -hmm. and you wouldn't get another one until the next ship came. So you were really expected to be sort of autonomous and if the person was the consul or the ambassador, they had sort of the full faith and credit of their government behind them, and they acted on behalf of the government very autonomously. That autonomy has shrunk over time due to digital technology mm -hmm. and the ability to have sort of real-time communication. But because a lot of what diplomats do is actually through what we would call secure channels, mm -hmm. that technology isn't as close to you as your cell phone. Mm -hmm. So um, there is still, I think, a strong element of being able to make autonomous uh, decisions based on what you know and understand of policy, what you've been instructed to do, but to use your best judgment. Mm -hmm. And that's actually why I tell our um, junior diplomats that the very best thing they can do is that tour at the visa window, oh. where you're face-to-face -face with someone mm -hmm. who's telling you a great story about why they need to go to America, mm -hmm. and you have to decide, you know, is he telling the truth? Does she really need to go? Does this make sense? What should I do? And then stand behind that decision because it's your decision. So still the original job you were posted here right. is the best window into nowadays diplomats work. Right. We were talking about how communication technology has changed and not changed uh, the work of diplomacy. Uh, another major change in the past couple of years is the COVID. Uh, prior to COVID, not many diplomats uh, video conference, uh, but nowadays everyone video conference. Pr prior to that, many multilateral meetings uh, take in places that are definitely not internet enabled. Uh, but during the pandemic, even the UN General Assembly uh, was a video conference, right? So um, have you witnessed uh, any change in the past uh, two and a half um, during the COVID? How digital diplomacy or diplomacy over video conferencing and internet has affected your work? Oh, absolutely. So um, when 
immediately prior to coming to Taiwan as the AIT director, I was the U.S. senior official for APEC. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for about the first eight months, I flew around the APEC world. I went to Chile. I went to Australia. I went to Malaysia. And then everything stopped in in, uh, Mm -hmm. March of 2021 or 2020, Mm -hmm. and um, we switched, we stopped. Mm -hmm. Nothing happened Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. a couple months. And then we went to a digital platform. And I think what we realized was face-to-face diplomacy is really important. The ability to have a quiet conversation, you know, outside of the main plenary, there is no way to proxy that over uh, Mm -hmm. online. There's no hallway track. There's no hallway track, right. Mm -hmm. But... For the for the at the subject matter expert level, mm-hmm. being able to do meetings online enables a much greater level of participation by the actual experts. Mm-hmm. So instead of having, you know, the line ministry, whether it's transportation or health or environment, provide talking points to the foreign ministry and then the foreign, then the diplomat deliver the mm-hmm. points, we could actually have the real experts on, you know, green energy or clean transportation or women's economic empowerment or indigenous economies connect with one another. And my greatest hope actually is that coming out of the pandemic, mm-hmm. We, we go back to the traditional face-to-face meetings, but we retain that subject matter expertise, that subject matter expert level exchange mm-hmm. online. Because at least in the U.S. system, those um, sort of senior specialists mm-hmm. are unlikely to be given the funding or the time to travel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they're certainly given the ability to speak on behalf of their agency for three or four hours at six o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. or midnight, <laughs> uh, you know, de- how, depending on how the timing is. And if we can reta- if there's one thing we can retain, I would want it to be that. Yeah. Um, during those past couple of years, I'm like a time zone traveler, <laughs> not a time traveler, like waking up in uh, the East Coast uh, of the U.S. Mm-hmm. and then uh, going to sleep in Europe or Africa mm-hmm. time zone. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And so um, another part, uh, aside from this positive use of communication mm-hmm. technology, um, the WHO has coined this term infodemic, that is to say disinformation pertaining mm-hmm. to the pandemic that spread like virus, actually more viral than the virus mm-hmm. um, sometimes. And we've seen uh, that during Russia's invasion uh, to Ukraine, uh, that the power of disinformation, misinformation in international narratives, mm-hmm. um, conspiracy theories, polarizations, and so on, uh, it's been phrased as a um, authoritarian threat to undermine democracy. Um, How do you think uh, is our best way to counter this threat? Well, you know, there is a saying, and that is that sunshine is the best disinfectant. Mm -hmm. So I think um, open and transparent government practices, Mm -hmm. uh, a free, a strong, free media, and a well-educated sort of population Mm -hmm. are the best ways to combat disinformation and misinformation. So public interest media and everyone who learned the practice to how to become a public interest media is citizen journalist. Right. And just and really that understanding that just because you see it written down or you mm-hmm. read it online doesn't mean it's actually true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
you know, if it, it's kind of what your mom tells you or what you learn in kind of eighth grade, if it sounds like it's too good to be true, mm-hmm, it's probably mm-hmm. too good to be true. And just check sources. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of thing is something that I think it's very accessible to most, well, really any population in a, a free society. And if we have that, uh, then I think we can be very resilient and really able to resist the um, the challenge that disinformation and misinformation uh, give our give our societies. Um, but if everyone learns the art of asking investigative mm-hmm. journalists uh, questions, uh, then uh, as government uh, officials, then we're answering not just to professional representative or journalists, mm-hmm. but literally everyone <laughs> around the world. Uh, and how did you see this um, kind of umbrella term called open government uh, that says we should actually develop ways to answer to everyone? No, I think we should. And here, I'm going to tell you another story. So, um, you know, I'm from the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. And Florida has this kind of very unique reputation in the United States because there's this media phenomena called Florida Man. Mm -hmm. So Florida Man does many ill-advised things. And Florida Man is always in the news. And that's because Florida has, Florida's a sunshine state. It's had a sunshine law for decades. Mm. And one of that, one of the outcomes of that is arrest records are made public within 24 hours and so but it's never it's never used with the person's name Mm -hmm. so it just says florida man or florida woman okay (laughs) and so it's not that more crimes are committed in florida it's that the system is open Mm -hmm. and so journalists are looking for interesting unusual stories Mm -hmm. have a lot of fodder there Mm Um, but I think that that, you know, when when government is open, uh, it reduces the likelihood of corruption. Mm-hmm. It um, It's a barrier to insider dealing or other sort of bad practices and behaviors that are unfair and wasteful and corrupt. And so I think open government, even if it do, is difficult or, mm-hmm. you know, makes for some funny stories, uh-huh. still you know, is better than the alternative. Right. Uh, And we're very happy to see that in December 2021, President Biden uh, reaffirmed the commitment of the U.S. to the open government strategy Mm -hmm. at the Open Government Partnership uh, Summit. Uh, And we've also seen that um, at and after the Summit for Democracy, we've got this year in action Mm -hmm. uh, to put in uh, more funding into the practice that you just described. And would you want to share some more (laughs) about how we're committing into doing this together? Well, I know that the U.S. commitment during the year mm-hmm. of action is really to work more with civil society mm-hmm. and to find gr- sort of more, I guess, practical and systematic ways for mm-hmm. civil society to engage with um, with open government. Mm-hmm. But I don't have more details beyond mm-hmm. that. What is Taiwan doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're committed uh, to open up not just the information part, which uh, we already have a Freedom of mm-hmm. Information Act, but to open up those information in a machine-readable uh, format. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this, I think the main difference is that previously, it's hard to compare apple to apple 
apple or orange to orange uh, in comparing, for example, the gender participation ratio mm -hmm. uh, in not just the parliamentary seats, which we're doing pretty well, mm -hmm. um, compared to cabinet seats, which we're not, uh, we have room <laughs> for improvement, uh, and in all levels of leadership and so on. So if we publish all these data in a machine-readable format, then instead of just journalists writing, caring about their stories, mm -hmm. it could be put on a global dashboard, mm -hmm. just as we're tracking our climate commitments and so on. Everybody can see, oh, that's the room for improvement and then dedicate mm -hmm. your energy there. Right. And also, if it's machine readable, it's open mm -hmm. for statistical analysis mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and sort of the sort of the big data look yeah. at the numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it let us correct data bias um, mm -hmm. because we um, publish upon collection if it's not related to privacy and trade mm -hmm. secrets. Uh, so people who have detected bias can just remind us uh, that there is bias there and you have to do better. Mm -hmm. No, and I think the I think civil society does a great job with that. Mm -hmm. um, sort of in Europe and in the United States, there's been a real push to make more accessible mm -hmm. uh, statistics related to gender in the business community. Yeah. So number of women who have seats on uh, boards of directors, salary differentials between average female and average male mm -hmm. employees at a given mm -hmm. company. And I think that's really provided a lot of thought-provoking um, discussion. I mean, it is there is always the danger, not really of miss or disinformation, but misunderstanding mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it does, I think, require mm -hmm. uh, some thought. Yeah, a, a context. Right. Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. uh, some context and some background. Mm -hmm. And um, there needs to be scope for dialogue. Mm -hmm. But all in all, I think the more information, the better. Mm -hmm. Okay, so more democracy and more <laughs> context. Right. Um, so democracy is a like a masterpiece in process. All right, it always uh, want to flourish with new colors, mm -hmm. and our democracy uh, benefit a lot from our relationship with AIT. Uh, we work together, for example, on the presidential hackathon, mm -hmm. uh, in which the international track about uh, countering the climate challenges together mm -hmm. has resulted a lot of innovative ideas from the international community. Uh, so thank you a lot for mm -hmm. that. Um, are, are there any other collaborations uh, with Taiwan in the democracy or digital world that impress you that you would like to share with us? Well, I mean, I one of the things that most impressed impressed me was um, a kind of Taiwan's embrace of the NASA hackathon. Oh, yeah. So that's mm -hmm. more the digital world. Yep. But really just wholehearted embrace and the groups were not homogenous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So sort of my, so, and I will admit, I last really took math and science in high school. And so my expectation would, would be was going into it that there would be teams from the big technical schools mm -hmm. or from sort of the computer science departments mm -hmm. at the universities. And they would be these homogenous teams. Mm -hmm. The team that won was... Um, at, you know, both male and female participants. Mm -hmm. I think one of the participants was a barista. Yep. I mean, it was really yep. a diverse group yep. that came together. And, you know, the, they won. And I think that, or that expresses the power of inclusive teams. 
And so Taiwan's ability to form these non-homogenous, inclusive teams, mm -hmm. clearly there's an example of how that team did better than other teams who were who were probably more homogenous. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's inclusive co-creation. Mm -hmm. Indeed, one of the winners of the international track of presidential hackathon mm -hmm. was a very similar uh, mm -hmm. inclusive team. So thank you for pointing out mm -hmm. that as a theme. Um, so in this last part, uh, let's continue this conversation about NASA Hackathon and move to talk about innovation in general, which is what differentiates our free and open societies. The AIT uh, launched the American Innovation Center and provides funding so it stays in mm -hmm. orbit. <laughs> what is the function of the AIC? Sure. So the AIC is, I would say, the natural evolution of what began as a library. Mm -hmm. so, it, so from being a repository of books to being a repository of knowledge. And so the American Innovation Center was launched at Songshan Park um, about seven or eight years ago, so mm -hmm. in about 2014. And it is it has completely evolved from its library uh, roots. It's a makerspace. Mm. It's a it's a place where we have a lot of innovative programs for designers um, and uh, small businesses. Mm -hmm. Really, sort of micro and small businesses. It's an incubation space ver with a very strong STEM theme, and it's in a beautiful facility. Uh -huh. So I visited Songshan Park um, last week for the first time. Um, and it's great to see how Taiwan has repurposed an old sort of colonial era, I think it was a tobacco plant. Yep, yep. Um, it's really lovely and now it's filled with small businesses and our maker, our, our mm -hmm. AIC is there. Um, and so, yeah, it's a really, it's a great partnership and we're really happy to be doing it. And there's a annual innovation forum uh, in the AIC. Um, please give us a taste of what lies in store, uh, because I understand the theme nowadays is the sustainable economy. What, what does that mean? So, right, this year's theme is Innovation uh, Drives the Sustainable Economy. And it's really talking about how sort of moving forward and catching the next wave of technology mm -hmm. can help make our lives more sustainable. Okay. So, of course, we're all waiting for uh, an innovation in sort of the, I guess, fuel power mm -hmm. electricity mm -hmm. uh, space that would allow us to rapidly become uh, less carbon intensive. But there are lots of other innovations out there in terms of recycling, the circular, the circular economy, green energy, um, reuse um, and repurposing mm -hmm. of various items. One of the really interesting shops at Songshan repurposes basketballs uh, that were have been used to the point of not being able mm -hmm. to use anymore by high schools and universities here in Taiwan into useful items, mm -hmm. you know, sort of whether it's a vase for a plant or they're reusing the leather in like a satchel or ah. a notebook container. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's really, it's, so it can be from something very sort of individual, like mm -hmm. repurposing a basketball mm -hmm. to something much more all encompassing, like recycling, you know, containers. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also all the other innovations that come that will drive the Internet of Things, that will help us uh, be more purposeful about how we use the resources, that the limited resources that our planet has. 
Right. So not just recycle basketball into well another basketball,、right. but rather upcycling it、uh, mm-hmm. into something that's、uh, also useful, even more useful to more people.、Right. That's excellent.、Uh, we'll have、uh, another episode talking about that particular innovation. <laughs>、uh, but I understand AIT formed a green team in 2020. What, what does the green team do? So that's really that's great. So the AIT green team is a employee-led team,、mm-hmm. so supported by AIT management、mm-hmm. that provides. Provides basically community advice on how AIT can be more sustainable,、oh. how we can improve our business practices,、mm-hmm. um, how we can use our purchasing power to、um, make improvements. So everything from organizing a community garden. Uh-huh. Uh, to advocating with the city and the U bike people to put a big U bike station near AIT,、awesome. to really working with、um, the overseas building office to install solar panels over our parking lot、mm-hmm. to help offset our、um, mm-hmm. energy usage. Wow, so that's a lot of creativity, innovation right there, right? In a couple of short sentences, <laughs> right?、Um, what other areas have you seen innovations? We talk about、uh, circular economy, upcycling, and so on. Are there any other areas like education or arts or whatever that you perceive as innovative、uh, in your AIT career? In my AIT career,、mm-hmm. so I mean, I think there's the well. Just to be very honest,、mm-hmm. diplomacy does not necessarily encourage innovation.、Um, but so, <laughs> the green team sounds very it's innovative. Very, it's very, it's very innovative.、Um, but、um, what I meant is, you're you're not supposed to really innovate policy. I see. You tend to stick with policy. Of course. Stick within your policy guidelines. But how we do business can be very innovative.、Mm-hmm. Um, like the rest of the world, we went from being a very sort of office based. Organization pre-pandemic to having sets of online collaborative tools that empower remote work that help us not just when we're quarantining、uh, because of a pandemic,、mm-hmm. but help make work more accessible for people who have childcare or eldercare responsibilities who might simply just not be feeling well and so don't want to come into the office、mm-hmm. and be coughing and sneezing on people.、Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of process innovation is really something that we encourage.、Um, we one thing that we have done here recently is adopt a kind of a corporate Uber policy,、oh, wow. um, which really makes it super easy to move around the city. I had a very、mm-hmm. normally I get driven around in a car, but I had a really early morning meeting、mm-hmm. a couple days ago, and click 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 took my Uber. Got paid back for it. Super easy, and that's something that adds convenience to lots of people's lives. It while maintaining the sort of accountability and reportability that open government and transparency requires. Excellent,、um, and you hail from a family of educators, and you're also a parent of three children. Did、mm-hmm. I get that right? That's right. Yeah. So, how do they see your work?、Uh, whether you're telecommuting or <laughs> taking an early Uber, and do any of them want to follow your footsteps? So, I think my children are, you know, very proud of what their parents do. They don't necessarily want to do what we're going to do. My oldest son is a graduate student in archaeology, so it's pretty far away from what mom and dad do. My daughter has a U.S. Army scholarship to go to university, so she'll commission into the regular army、oh, wow. when she graduates in a year.、Mm-hmm. Um, and my younger son is still in high school, so he's not quite sure what he wants to do.、Um, 
my family, it's really very interesting. My my mother's family, they are all teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, every level, every grade, every subject. Um, I do not have enough patience to be a teacher. So I have to say, I have the greatest of respect for teachers. I could not do it. I see. Okay. Well, but I'm asking a pedagogical question to you now. Uh, since our mission in this channel is to bring Taiwan to the world, mm-hmm. how would you, I wouldn't say teach, but show, introduce uh, Taiwan um, to the uninitiated? What would I? How would I describe Taiwan? Uh-huh. I think I would say Taiwan is a relatively small island with a really big heart. Okay. Um, that was my first impression when I came here 30 years ago, and it really hasn't changed. Uh, Taiwan is creative, innovative, friendly. The food is great. The traffic is bad. Um, <laughs> the weather is just like Florida, uh-huh. which is has goods and bads. Uh, but no, it's a great place. But I would say, uh, you know, small island, big heart. Excellent, small island, big heart. So, um, before wrapping up our dialogue, I have one final question. Uh, you're a lover of cats, just like mm-hmm. President Tsai Ing-wen and also our Tekra representative, uh, Bi Kim Xiao. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever exchange uh, experience like kitty care tips? <laughs> My cat is very small uh-huh. and, a, and a big chicken. Uh-huh. So, and I think their cats are more, they have more presence than, <laughs> okay. than mine. So I would no one would ever call my cat a cat warrior. <laughs> Although I but I think uh, Representative Shao's cats are and, and she is too. Okay, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Like cat, uh, like uh, cat mm-hmm. lover. <laughs> so thanks again, Sandra, uh, for coming to our show. Uh, I believe our conversation today really inf- reinforces the belief that collaboration among our like-minded democracies with big hearts mm-hmm. is the best way to strengthen uh, democracy worldwide. So thank you for joining today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, and to our audience, uh, please check more information and videos on TaiwanPlus.com. And we also have a YouTube channel. So if you like today's episode, be sure to subscribe and share. See you next time. Live long and prosper.